0: This is Hot Politics. I'm David Mackay. Hot Politics is made possible by listeners like you. We're asking for your support to keep the work going. If you've supported the podcast with a donation already, thank you. If you haven't yet, please donate what you're able. $5, $10 as a one-time or monthly gift – Every little bit helps to keep producing more podcasts. Please donate at nationalobserver.com. Welcome to Episode 2, Deconstructing Climate Disinformation. Today I have a guest who's been following the disinformation in climate change for many years. She looks at tweets, the ads, videos, and blogs created to make you think climate change isn't all that serious. We're going to deconstruct that a little. Amy Westervelt is an award-winning, independent, investigative journalist who's been reporting on climate issues for more than 20 years. She's written for The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, NPR, The New York Times, Huffington Post, and Popular Science. Her work is cited among the earliest accountability reporting on climate change. She founded a podcast network called Clinical Frequency, which has made more than 12 podcasts. She hosts one of those podcasts. It's called Drilled, which she describes as a true crime podcast about climate change. It was awarded an excellence in audio storytelling in 2019 by the Online News Association and has more than a million, yes, you heard that correctly, a million downloads. Amy joins me from her home in Costa Rica. Welcome to Hot Politics.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: It's good to have you. I want to start by asking you to define climate disinformation. So how does that differ from climate misinformation? Right.
1: Um, It's... It's really just a matter of intention. So if someone is very strategically trying to get people to think a certain thing about climate, that is disinformation. If they are just getting it wrong um, and maybe accidentally spreading things that they think are true but are not true, that is misinformation.
0: Which kind should we be more concerned about? Misinformation or disinformation or does it matter?
1: I think disinformation, because it usually spawns the misinformation piece. You know, the vast majority of people who are amplifying the the messages of the disinformers, I would call them, you know, perpetrating more misinformation because they believe this thing to be true and they're not, you know, intentionally trying to mislead people. So I think if you take out the disinformers, you sort of solve the the misinformation problem, more or less. There's always going to be people who spout off about things without really knowing what they're talking about.
0: Now, you've been reporting on climate issues um, and delays in climate action for years. So what kinds of disinformation tactic does the fossil fuel industry use?
1: There's been a real focus in the last 10, 15 years on climate science denial and and the idea of injecting doubt into the science and just being able to create enough of a kernel of doubt in people's minds that they are unwilling to make big changes or to be inconvenienced in any way because they're not totally sure that this thing is happening.
0: Here's a Twitter ad put out by the American Petroleum Institute.
1: We hear the noise. The energy debate, the pundits, the chatter, it's constant. It can feel overwhelming. But the millions of problem solvers working in natural gas have reduced emission rates by 60% in the largest producing regions. We're taking real actions working to create real solutions. And thanks to natural gas, the U.S. is leading the way in reducing emissions. We hear the noise, but we're focused on action. So that's a very effective thing. I also think that if you look back at, you know, sort of the hundred years that that predates anyone starting to talk about climate change, you really see this foundation being laid by the fossil fuel industry for quite a long time, um, kind of defining how we think about the economy, how we think about the environment, how, like what types of solutions we're allowed to consider to environmental problems, Uh, how
0: we think about the government and regulation and all of that stuff. They're very involved. Here's a TV ad by ExxonMobil about oil and gas as the engine of the economy.
1: Who keeps the economy moving? The people behind the vehicles that connect the world and those who produce the fuel they rely on. At ExxonMobil, we're working to ensure a stable supply of energy and advancing innovations like biofuels made from wood waste and renewable diesel made from plants, which could one day reduce emissions by up to 85% so the world can keep moving toward a net zero future. You look back at even the late 1800s, they're already starting to lay this groundwork of, here's how we want people to think about the government's role in industry. And here's how we want people to think about the environment as this thing over there. So I think without that early history, climate denial wouldn't have worked so well. Yes, it's a appealing message to tell people that nothing needs to change, but um I don't think it would have been as effective as quickly without, you know, a century of kind of indoctrinating people into thinking the way that the fossil fuel industry wants them to think uh prior to that. In those years the industry was was really pushing the idea of a divide between you know humans and the environment um and of the economy as being the most important thing to consider and the environment as being totally divorced from that. Bizarre because of course the economy requires quite a few natural resources to work. <laughs> so I think all of those kinds of things really sort of set us up for it being pretty easy to block climate action once that became something that people were
0: talking about. That's a ways back. Holy cow. It really is.
1: Oh yeah. They were one of the first industries to use PR. Um, They actually helped to create, Polling and market research, the the fossil fuel industry, like they were the beta testers of that, way back in you know, the the early 1900s, they were they were doing that. Um, Standard Oil of New Jersey, which is today Exxon Mobil, I mean they, there's documentation of them doing extensive market research and polling in like 1919 trying to figure out what messages will work, which audiences and who they should be talking to about what. They started investing in universities in the early 1940s, not with the intention of looking for engineers or you know, people who would be good managers of oil refining facilities or things like that, but with the intention of shaping how elite educated people view the economy it was very much like, we need everyone to think of you know, this particular type of economy that works for us as being the one that's preferable.
0: And so how, how did they get this message
1: out? University research was a big one. Standard Oil of New Jersey was one of the first private companies to heavily invest in universities. In the US, there was a, a tax code change in the 20s and again in the 30s that sort of made donations to universities a write-off. So you started to see a little bit more private money going into university funding, but Standard Oil really saw this as a golden opportunity. And so they funded, you know, economics programs, um, research centers, public policy research centers. That was a big one because they saw it as like, look, this is the feeder to policy. If we can control all the white papers that are being written and all the research that's being done, then, when the policymakers go to look at the evidence base for
0: policies that they're discussing, our hands are all over it. So they were able to insinuate themselves into research, trusted research at institutions like universities.
1: That's right, and they purposely went after the most prestigious universities. So it's it's Harvard, it's MIT, it's you know like any any university that has you know a good reputation because they know okay government officials are going to be looking at those institutions for for the information that they need. They also were very involved in setting up legal like law schools and legal research centers too, again, very much injecting this idea of the types of laws that they wanted to see and not around regulating business. By the way, not just universities, elementary schools. There are programs that like uh, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, Chevron. Chevron actually had the longest running school curricula program in the Western United States when they were Standard Oil of California. They had a whole music and arts and culture curriculum that they piped into schools in the Western United States through like, you know, through the radio, it was, you know, tens of thousands of kids and they're all learning about history, but it's like the history that Chevron wants them to learn. Right.
0: Here's one of those radio lessons from 1971. Convenience is the great thing. The automobile is an incredible convenience to the average American in his everyday life
1: for parents getting to work, running down to the store, picking up the kids, and for the kids themselves, going on vacation trips, going on dates. Almost everything we Americans do involves the automobile in some way. Don't forget that most of us took a quick ride in a car on our way to being born. There's a lot of really interesting examples of sort of how they uh, describe the U.S. economy and you know how kids are learning about this stuff in this seemingly very innocuous way But it's really indoctrinating people into a particular mindset.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. I didn't realize that the roots were that deep when you think about it. Universities, schools. Comic books. Oh my goodness. Comic books.
1: Comic books. Movies. There was a movie that Standard Oil of New Jersey commissioned in the 40s that won an Academy Award. It's called The the Louisiana Story. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's it's all in service of making this industry seem completely like you cannot separate the country from the industry or the economy from the industry, underpinning everything. I mean, it's brilliant. It's so it's so smart. But they were doing so much and spending so much money and showing up in so many places for so long before anyone else started doing that stuff.
0: So fast forward to present day, you've got climate activists who are calling out fossil fuel companies, you've got former politicians like our former environment minister, Catherine McKenna, who, without naming them, is calling them out, and you've got uh, a succession of COP meetings where they're being called out, but they're also present as lobbyists. So I'm wondering, over the years, now with the evolution of social media, how has that message, how has that tactic changed?
1: Yeah, social media has kind of given them an even bigger megaphone. It's it's easier to get a message out to even more people and to really bombard people with it. And you see that like if you look at who's advertising on Twitter and on Facebook and all of these places, it's like um, especially around inflection points like the COP meetings or like a big election in the US or Canada or Europe you will see this massive increase in ad spend. And it's like, oh, wow, Exxon is spending more than anyone else on Facebook ads by a long shot. So they're definitely very present there. The other thing that that they do is um, they're very, very good at media, right? So they'll... They'll really get out in front of a story and set the framework before anyone else has had time to kind of figure out what's going on. You see the best example recently of this is the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You had spokespeople for the oil and gas industry talking, I mean, six, seven months before Putin invaded about how, you know, gas prices were going to increase because of climate policy. At that time, there was no climate policy. I mean i was like i I wish i wish this was a problem it's you know the journalists weren't really looking at gas prices yet so nobody had done their homework to see what was actually raising gas prices or what was going on in in russia and ukraine and and you know how that might impact things so then by the time that invasion happened and then Subsequently, gas prices did start to raise. That message had already been out there for, you know, six or seven months, unquestioned, completely unquestioned. And then unfortunately, a lot of journalists don't know how gas pricing works in general. So so when they did start to go up, it was like, oh no, this is being caused by the war, but also these climate policies. And there's been a little bit of of kind of clawing that back with. You know, as the oil companies continue to post record profits, I think it becomes harder and harder for them to push that story. But still, you know, because they were out in front with it, it gave them basically a year of being able to cash in on those profits without anybody really saying much, which is very, very clever. So that's the thing too. It's sort of like very, very prepared for any eventuality. If something stops working, they go back to something else. So you're seeing this in in respect to uh, the cop. 27th. In the very early days of COP, the big story the fossil fuel industry was telling was these Global South countries, they're just, they just have their hands out. They're trying to get all our money, blah, blah, blah. It's unfair that they shouldn't have the same emissions reductions requirements that we do. Now it's, it's unfair for you elitist climate people to not let Global South countries emit more for longer. Because it suits it suits the industry, um, you know. They're at the same time saying, you know, no loss and damages, no, no, no. We don't need to be paying these people. We need to be gifting them with our amazing energy. <laughs> and it's compelling, even within the climate movement. I think that people have had a hard time responding to the idea that quote-unquote, cheap fossil fuel is a pathway out of poverty, even though literally no evidence supports that narrative.
0: It's interesting that you talk about the narratives, because in our first podcast, I had two fairly well-known climate activists in this country, and I asked them whether or not their message is failing, whether the fossil fuel industry has the upper hand. And I'm wondering what your assessment is is of that when we talk about this narrative that the industry is is promoting. So are the activists failing to counter that narrative in this age of social media?
1: There's some interesting stuff around that. A few years ago, I think I want to say 2020, um, someone leaked to me some internal documents from BP This was right when Bernard Looney was taking over. They were rebranding. We're just a net zero company now, BP, (laughs) you know, and and they were doing all these workshops. And so it was really interesting because I got to see sort of how they were talking about this stuff internally, what the goals of the marketing were, and where they thought they had challenges in achieving those goals. And at that time, the thing that they were the most worried about was the youth climate movement. This is pre-COVID. They're like, these guys are like, they're believable, they're authentic, and like, we're looking like chumps. This is a big problem. How do we deal with this? COVID took a huge bite out of the youth climate movement. Um, People couldn't get out in the streets and protest together. People lost jobs, young people were very isolated. And I think that in some ways social media has been almost a problem for the youth climate movement. There's a significant amount of of efforts to, you know, sort of try to convince youth climate leaders to become influencers on social media rather than organizers in the real world. And that has been a little bit problematic, I think, you know, cause you can look at, Oh wow, this person now has a million followers on Instagram and they're going to all of these like amazing events and whatever, but it's like, okay, but. Where's the ground game. What do those numbers mean? I think right now everyone is sort of catching their breath and like getting back out there and, you know, retrenching and looking at like, okay, what can we do? I know that there's been a lot of discourse about the tomato soup uh, protest and and whether or not that's effective. And, you know, people are starting to think through, you know, what are the most effective strategies? I think I'm seeing a little bit more of a... um an interest in being quite a bit more disruptive out in the world in general
0: throwing throw, throwing things at paintings and so on right throwing
1: things at paintings and gluing gluing pe- their, your hand to things and stuff like that and we can debate how effective these things are but i think the big message that we're hearing from young people is we feel like we're out of all of the options that we were told would work and now we're like having to come up with something else
0: Amy in your podcast you've been really focusing on the history of the fossil fuel PR industry.
1: In the course of researching this 100-year history of fossil fuel PR, I found this one guy who was mentioned by a lot of the of the big PR people for oil in sort of like reverential terms, like he was a legend amongst them, but he was one of these guys who kept himself really out of the press and out of the limelight, just kind of behind the scenes. And his name was Earl Newsom, And he worked for Standard Oil of New Jersey for 20 odd years. And I found this incredible strategy
0: that he wrote. In this particular clip that we're going to play and get you to respond to, You introduce us to Earl Newsom of Standard Oil, so let's have a listen, and then uh, we'll, we'll pick up the conversation afterwards.
1: The kind of personal freedom which creates the greatest incentive for individual achievement. Incentives that inspire free men to action, that fire the spirit of great accomplishments, that enable all of us to put our whole hearts into hard work because of the personal satisfactions and benefits that we know will be our reward. In America our free privately owned competitive enterprise system never stops with rewards for just a few people the freedom the opportunities the rewards for achievement have directly enabled all of us to live on a scale undreamed of in any other country of the world I think it's it's just really interesting to see how much these guys you know were thinking about national identity and the economy and how things would work for their clients. So in in this particular case, Earl Newsom is, uh, I mean, he's like, I, kind, I think of him as a total genius. He's looking at, it's like six months before the war has ended and he's like, okay, there's a couple things that the government has been doing during the war that we're all okay with, but we need to remind people that we're not going to be okay with it. As soon as the war's over, we need to move on from that. And, you know, we're not going to be obvious about it. We're going to just subtly remind people about all of the amazing things that free market capitalism gives to them, uh, like jobs and good wages and innovation and all of these things so that, you know, there's no threat of slipping into, some kind of socialism or communism post-World War II. The worst possible thing in these, in these executives' minds, the worst possible thing for the fossil fuel industry would have been the erosion of free market capitalism, in part because, remember, oil companies are always worried about being nationalized because they're profiting from a public resource, right? They're profiting from... A resource that really like belongs to the country. So they're always thinking about like, oh boy, how do we make sure no one ever comes close to thinking
0: about that as a possibility? So what are we to take from that?
1: Honestly, I think the biggest lesson is just to interrogate everything that you think is objectively true. Like there's a really high chance that you just think that way because a very powerful industry spent a lot of money to convince you to think that way. I see people all the time in the climate movement repeating things that I know came from like Earl Newsom. We have to think about the impact that, uh, you know, this or that is going to have on the economy or, well, you you don't want to come off as though you're prioritizing some sort of utopian, pristine view of nature. And I'm like, Literally no environmentalist has ever actually done that. It's just what they've been accused of doing for a hundred years. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. Question all of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So who is winning at this point, who is winning the disinformation war?
1: Oh, the fossil fuel industry, hands down. Yeah. They, they're record profits. They're expanding right now at a time when they are supposed to, supposed to be winding down the the russia ukraine situation has been a giant boon to the gas industry i mean they're building out new terminals right and left for us and 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 saying oh this is this is for europe we're gonna solve the gas pricing in europe okay but it takes five years to build one of these things so (laughs) yeah but they've signed all these deals where they're locked into producing a certain amount for the next 10 years. And and there's a mad rush afoot amongst all of the oil companies to get as much oil out of the ground as they can in the next 10 years because they know that the, the jig is going to be up soon.
0: Well, this has been a a fascinating conversation. I know that I've learned a lot, and I think that that's important as we start to think about climate change and and where we go with all of this. So if people want to learn more about your podcast, they should listen to Drilled. Amy Westerveld, thank you very, very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much. It was so great to, to be here.
0: Just a reminder that we need your help to continue Every donation helps. And please rate us a 5 on Apple. Tell your friends. We want everyone to find us. Hot Politics is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer, Zara Kozama. The executive editor of Canada's National Observer is Karen Pugliese. Our Publisher is Linda Solomon. I'm David McKay. Next Tuesday, it's Maxed Out with Max Fawcett. See you in two weeks.